Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about Malachi 3. Malachi 3 is fairly famous because that's a chapter that the Calvinist will always turn to to talk about God's unchanging nature. That God is immutable and in no way can change. They'll usually turn here or they'll turn to God's not a man that he should repent, even though that's just about repentance. Or they might turn to James 1.17 where it says there's no shadow of turning in God. But Malachi 3 is their preferred proof text, Malachi 3.6. But this podcast today, we're just going to be going over the entire chapter of Malachi 3. We're going to be looking at the context of their favorite proof text. We're going to wonder if their understanding of this proof text makes sense in context. Does it work with the context? And the context is very strange. And so let's let's wait for it till we get to the end of the chapter and see what Malachi 3 is actually saying and how they have to discount this entire chapter except for the one phrase they want to take out of context. The book of Malachi is written as a condemnation of the people. There was a lot of wickedness in the days of Malachi. The priestly caste of Israel had corrupted themselves. And there's strong indictments against them throughout the first couple chapters. Let's listen how Malachi 2 ends. This is the last verse, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? This verse comes just after Malachi describes all sorts of things that are wrong with Israel. To Malachi, God is watching this evil unfold on earth, and God is becoming weary because God has to endure this over and over again. People saying that good is evil and evil is good and that God's justice is lacking. That they say, well, you know, why do we even have to care about Yahweh? Where's his justice? The wicked prosper. And this is a familiar refrain throughout the Bible. Lord, why do the wicked prosper, Job says. You see it throughout the Bible. Everyone's always wondering, asking God, saying, God, these wicked people, they are prospering. And the righteous people, they are suffering. Where is your justice? Come, enact your kingdom on earth. Let us see your justice. And the people who hate God, they said, you know, your God's not powerful. He's not doing anything. He's not going to stop us. And that what the Christians were looking for, what the Jews were looking for, was God to finally enact his will, his justice, his power on earth. It's not a Calvinistic notion. God's not outside of time. God's not impassable where he can't experience pain and suffering. And God, in this verse, is shown to be very fed up with just the current attitude of Israel. Malachi 3 starts talking about God's promises. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare a way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who could stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire, like the fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the day of old, as in former years. 
we note that this is maybe a messianic prophecy. There's a Messiah. There's a refiner's fire. What they're looking for is a day of judgment, a day when God comes back to earth and rights the wrongs. All the wicked are going to be punished. He talks about the sons of Levi being refined. This refiner's imagery is about burning up all the impurities in the metal and just leaving what is good and righteous. So all the bad priests, all the bad Israelites are going to be destroyed and all the good ones will be left to praise God and to serve God on earth. Again, I need to make clear that this is standard Jewish eschatology. You find it all over the Old Testament. You find it throughout all the exile-related prophets talking about this day of the Lord, this day when God's judgment will come to earth, where the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be blessed. And there's going to be a national Israel that's established, and then the Gentiles are going to be bringing tribute to the new Jerusalem, this new kingdom of God ruled by God in justice. And Malachi is really echoing these same themes that you find throughout the Old Testament. Malachi 3.4 says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. How does God know that it's going to be like that? Well, because he goes in and he kills all the wicked people. Let's listen to the very next verse. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So who is God going to be judging when he comes back? Everyone who is wicked. As a quick side note, how employers would oppress their workers is they would take coins and they would smelt in non-metallic substances or, or cheaper metals into the coinage. And so they would inflate their currency. And, and the Bible talks about this is like a standard practice in cheating the laborer. And that also draws on the image of God refining the silver, getting all the impurities from the silver, and the silver is Israel. This is teaching, don't inflate your money, pay people what you promise to pay them. So let's get into the mindset of Malachi here. Israel has rebelled against God, they're doing all these wicked things. Malachi then explains to him a future situation in which God or his messenger, the Messiah, is going to come and they're going to right all the wrongs. And they're going to replace the current human government with a new government, a government of justice. And so here's the context of Malachi 3.6. And Malachi 3.6 is the proof text that the Calvinists will turn to in order to enforce themes of immutability and passability. God can't change. He's in this timeless, eternal now. Is that, is that the context? Does that make sense in context? Is Malachi's listeners, are they just going to be coming along with all his points so far, and then all of a sudden there's some random metaphysical statement in the middle of it? Does that add to the context? Does that do anything for the listener? Let's read and figure this out. Here's the verse. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, which is Israel, are not consumed. Let's read John Calvin's commentary on Malachi 3.6. Here the prophet more clearly reproves and checks the impious waywardness of the people for God, after having said he would come and send a redeemer, though not such as would satisfy the Jews, now claims to himself that which justly belongs to him, and says that he changes not because he is God. Under the name Jehovah, God reasons from his own nature, for he sets himself, as we have observed in our last lecture, in opposition to mortals. Nor is it any wonder that God here disclaims all inconsistency, 
since the impostor Balaam was constrained to celebrate God's immutable consistency. For he is not God, he says, who changes or varies like a man. Numbers 23, 19. One thing about Calvin we really need to understand is Calvin knew his Bible. When he's trying to build a point, often his points are contextual and he understands in what context things were said. And so a lot of Calvinists today will quote Numbers 23, 19. They will have no clue it was said by a false prophet, Balaam. They won't know. But Calvin understands that, and he uses that, and he talks about the contextual understanding. And that's really one thing we should appreciate about Calvin, is he understood the context in which things were said. And often, often, not always, he used those contexts to make his points. They didn't fully make his points. Often he kind of uses allusions, but he does understand who's saying what to whom. And take for case in point this Malachi verse that we're going over right now. He understands it's in context of God's plan to send a redeemer and Israel's rebellion. And Calvin, he hits the nail on the head on the interpretation of this verse. It's not clear from this passage whether he's trying to use this Malachi 3.6 verse for total immutability. You might be able to assume so in just that first paragraph I read, but he doesn't dwell on the point, so it's hard to know exactly. But he does talk about the contextual meaning of this verse, how this verse fits the context, and that's very important. Calvin, being a scholar of the original languages, gives two possible interpretations, two different phrasings of this verse. The first way he thinks is the less likely of the two, and here's what he translates that. Though you are not consumed, I am not changed. As though it was said, think not that you have escaped, though I long spared you and your sins. Though then you are not yet consumed, as I have borne with you in your great wickedness, yet I continue to be Jehovah, nor do I change my nature. And ye shall at length find that I am the just judge. And though I shall not soon execute my judgment, punishment being held suspended, or as it was buried, Yet again, I will show you I am not changed. So Calvin's first possible reading of this verse is God saying, You know what? I don't change. So I see all your guys as evil, and I'm going to execute judgment. Don't think that just because it hasn't happened yet, that it's not going to come. I'm not changed, and therefore you're not destroyed yet, but you will be destroyed because of my consistent nature. And Calvin thinks it's the least likely of the two possibilities. Let's read his second possibility. Here's Calvin again. But the prophet seems rather to accuse the Jews of ingratitude in charging God with cruelty or negligence because he did not immediately assist them. And at the same time, they did not consider with them themselves that they remained alive because God had a reason derived from his own nature for sparing them and for not rendering to them what they had deserved. The meaning then is this. I am God and I change not and ought ye not to have been acknowledged that wonderful forbearance through which I have not spared you. He's using this old English. For how has it been that you have not perished, and that innumerable deaths have not swallowed you up? How is it then that you are yet alive? It is because you have dealt faithfully faith me, so that it behaves me to exercise care with you. Nay, it is indeed a wonder that I have long fumigated against you, so as to destroy you long ago. And so that's kind of long and lengthy. I'm going to sum it up real quick. And this is how I take the verse. I think this is the most natural understanding. Is God saying, you know, you guys have done so many things. And you guys 
in all justice, should have been destroyed a long ago. I should have killed you all, just wiped you off the face of the earth. But I have not done that because I am true to my own nature, my own promises. And I think this is a, definitely an allusion to the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, in which God promises Abraham a lineage. And this lineage is referenced throughout the Bible. It's uh, talked about as reasons that God is not destroying Israel throughout the Bible. And this is where we see it again, that God is being true, God is being faithful, and God is not going to change on his promise to Israel that he's going to make of Abraham a great nation. So Calvin understands this, although he doesn't link this to the prophecy. He doesn't link this to the covenant between God and Abraham, which is a lot more to say than Calvin's followers in the modern world. They don't understand the context. They don't understand how this verse is being used. They don't understand what Malachi is trying to communicate to his audience. They don't care about that because they just want a little proof text to support their little theology. And it doesn't matter from what context is derived. Just like the numbers verse, they don't care that it's said by a false prophet. It doesn't phase them. They don't care. They don't know. They just want the short statement. And that's all they care about to fit into their theology. But Calvin, he knows why this verse is being used, and he knows to what effect. Again, for the record, God is saying, I should have destroyed you long ago. You've done so many evil things. And if justice was going to prevail, you guys would be dead already. But I'm staying true to myself. I'm staying true to my character and not destroying you. And again, this is in reference to the Abrahamic covenant and this is the same reason in Exodus 32, God did not destroy Israel because he's staying true to Abraham. This unilateral promise he made long ago that he's striving to fulfill. And that subverts justice. Justice would have been Israel being destroyed. That has not happened. And that's what this verse is communicating. Now I'm going to turn to Rabbi Sachs. And he has this great book called The Great Partnership, Science, Religion, and the Search for Meaning. And he talks about how Christianity is a Platonized version of Judaism. And let's listen to him about Malachi 3.6. Far from being timeless and immutable, God in the Hebrew Bible is active, engaging, and in constant dialogue with his people, calling, urging, warning, challenging, and forgiving. When Malachi says in the name of God, I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3.6, he's not speaking about his essence or pure being, the unmoved mover, but about his moral commitments. God keeps his promises even when his children break theirs. What does not change about God are the covenants he makes with Noah, Abraham, and the Israelites at Sinai. Rabbi Sachs gets it. He understands what this verse is meaning to do, and he disassociates it from the negative theology. The negative theology, this is like the one proof text that the Calvinists turn to for immutability, and in context, this is talking about God's faithfulness to his moral commitments, to his covenants, covenants which he swore upon himself. You know, it's not a verse about his essence or negative theology or metaphysics. It's just not about that. And it doesn't fit the context because it doesn't work. I, the Lord, am immutable, therefore you're not destroyed. Ooh, that doesn't make sense. How does one lead to the other? How does God being utterly immutable, lead to them not being destroyed. I mean, God destroys plenty of nations throughout the Bible. So just because God's immutable, let's just pretend God was immutable throughout the whole Bible. If God was immutable, why are the, these people saved and other nations destroyed by God? 
It just doesn't make sense. One does not lead to the other. Contextually, it doesn't do anything for what Malachi is trying to communicate. The only way this does make sense is if somehow the not changing is linked to the people not being destroyed. And in what way does God not destroy Israel elsewhere in the Bible? It's because of his promises to Abraham. That's what he doesn't change about. Let's read the very next verse. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Whoever numbered these verses kind of did a really bad job. They should have just cut it off after the Lord of hosts. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and had not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. That sounds to me like God is changing and responding in, in anticipation of stuff that people do that he didn't foresee. God's saying, you know, I'm telling you all this. I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to kill all the wicked people. Repent and believe or else you're going to die. That's what I'm saying. Real quick, just talking about Calvin again. He's pretty good at talking about contextual understandings of verses. But then what he does is he tries to interpret verses and lie to metaphysics. And here's what he does with this verse. God is said to return to us, this is Calvin, when he ceases to demand the punishment of our sins, and when he lays aside the character of a judge and makes himself known to us as a father. We indeed know that God neither returns nor departs, for he who fills all places never moves here or there, and we also know that we exist and live in him. But he shows us by outward evidences that he is alienated from us, and by the same he shows that he is propitious to us, For when he favors us with fruitful seasons, with peace, and with other blessings, he is said to be near us. But when he lets loose the reins of his wrath, or exposes us to the salts of Satan, and to the wanton power of men, he is said to be far removed from us. But this is so well known that I need not dwell longer on the point. So Calvin takes this next verse, which talks about God's response to man, and he says this is all just figurative. You know, when God is blessing us, that's said that he's near us. When God's not blessing us, it's said that he's far away. Yeah, it sounds plausible, doesn't it? But is that what the author of the text, is Is that what he's going for? This figurative, close and far away, and if God's blessing us, he's close, and if he's punishing us, he's far away. In the verse, it sounds very action-response. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. It doesn't sound like a figurative, when I'm blessing you, that's me returning to you. It doesn't seem like it's phrased that way to myself. I mean, maybe I'm just reading it wrong, but it just—it doesn't sound like that's what the prophet was going to. Return to me and I will return to you. Action, response. It sounds to me that Malachi is, is describing a change in God, a return, an actual return, a response in God that doesn't have to happen. And we learn from this chapter that often the righteous people, they are not getting blessed by God. They're just not. And they're living these terrible lives while the people who rebel against God are becoming rich and living a long time and having big families. And everyone's looking around and they're saying, why do the wicked prosper? What's going on here? Remember we were talking about the end of chapter 2? That's exactly their complaint. It's not as if following God's necessarily going to warrant you good treasures. And so this return to me and I'll return to you, it's not happening currently as the prophet's saying this. This is a future action. 
It's a future response to a future thing that these people will do. The text goes on, but you say, how shall we return? Malachi 3.8, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we re-robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and there will be food in my house. (laughs) And listen to this, listen to this. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. God is saying, you test me, test me. He says, if you do this, I'm going to do this in response. I'm going to just flood you guys with gifts, with with riches, with all sorts of blessings if you guys start tithing your full amount to me. God is setting up a test for them. He's saying, if you do this, then I'll do this. He's saying, you test me. I will respond. And Calvin Calvin just rejects all this, that people can respond, that people could actually do things of their own will. And you know, we talked about Malachi 3.7, where it says, return to me and I'll return to you. Here's what Calvin says about man's ability to return. And God bids them the return. Hence, the papists very foolishly conclude that repentance is in the power of man's free will. But God requires what is above our strength. You notice that we can't return to God on our own. This call for repentance, that's all kind of fake. God requires is above our strength. Yet there is no reason why we should complain that there is too heavy a burden laid on us. For regards not what we can or what our ability admits, but what we owe to him and what our duty requires. Though then no one can of his own self turn to God, he is not on this account excusable, because we must consider whence comes this defect, and how much soever, as I have already said, that man may pretend his own impotency, he cannot yet escape from being bound to God, though more is required of him than he can himself perform. Calvin's claims are literally that any time that God tells us to do something, that's not a real call for us to do stuff, because we can't do stuff. And God has to enable anyone to do anything. And often God subverts his own calls for people to do stuff because he calls for people to do something and then people reject that. It's crazy theology. And this is how he discounts the Bible. He understands the context. He understands how the verses are being used. He discounts it based on his own theology. He says, you know, we have to understand this in this really weird sense where God's making these false calls for repentance. Let's skip down to verse 13, Malachi 3:13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. These are people who want to serve God And they are looking at all these people who don't serve God, all the people who mock God, and those people are becoming rich. There's no justice that they see on earth. And there's there's no profit to serve God because they just die like normal people. They, They get all this persecution and then they get killed. In the Old Testament especially, people are very concerned about the here and now, this life. You don't find very much theology about what happens after you die. And so all the salvation promises are for the current generation, the people alive here and now. And people, they didn't want to just die. They wanted some benefit from serving God and not persecution and not a hard life. 
They were looking for current blessings. They were looking for God to fulfill justice on earth within their own lifetimes. That was the hope. Obviously, more often than not, that didn't happen. And so you have all these calls to God throughout the Bible saying, Where are you, God? Why are the wicked prospering? And why are the righteous being persecuted? God, come to earth. Do your justice. Make the earth whole again. Make it righteous. Make it just. So that's their concerns. Their concerns are justice, that God gives out justice rightly. And then we turn to verse 16. This is a very strange verse. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So this book is being written. This is a book, and it's called a book of remembrance. And who's remembering what from this book? What it appears to be is all the people think that God doesn't bless the right people or judge the right people. And so the purpose of this book seems to be that when this Messiah comes, when God refines the people of Israel, that this book of remembrance, they will take the names and they'll bounce them off those who are still in Israel and those people will be spared. This is a book ensuring that this group of people have justice, that these people are blessed for following God when it was not socially advantageous to do so. And it'll also make sure that they are not judged in error. It's a book of remembrance. God's using this book to remember who his faithful are. So let's put aside for a second the question of if God needs a book to remember things. We have to understand that Israel, the people who are righteous and people who loved God, thought that this book was necessary and useful. That's their theology. That's the theology of the people of Israel. They're not negative theologians. They don't think God is timeless and immutable. And they're not taking Malachi 3.6 as a metaphysical absolute. They don't believe it. They don't even think that God will remember to judge them correctly. They want a book of remembrance such that their names are recorded as the people who are faithful to God. And who's writing this book? It seems to me that God is writing this book. It's a divine book. And other people have said the same things. But even if it wasn't a divine book, even if it was a physical book that the prophet wrote out of everyone's names just to reassure them, that's their theology about God. That the righteous people have, that Malachi feeds into, that this book of remembrance is going to be a useful record of those who love God. If you're an open theist and you've ever been accused by any Calvinist of heresy or blasphemy for what you say about God, look at what the righteous people in Israel believe about God in Malachi 3. They don't believe that God has present knowledge or remembrance of people. And they write a book, or God writes a book, in order so that they could double-check those names on the Day of Judgment. Calvinists will turn to Malachi 3.6 for their negative theology and then if you ever turn to these verses, they, they don't like these verses. These verses make them feel very awkward trying to explain why this book is in existence, why a book of remembrance was written, how this book of remembrance was used, and how the people thought that this was a useful thing or how God thought this was a useful book. What is the purpose of this book? What is it doing? Why is it being written? How does it fit the theology of the people who wanted it written, who found it useful, and why is it recorded in Malachi? In context of this verse that says, I, the Lord, do not change. 
And here's how the book is going to be used. Malachi 3.17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between righteous and wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. All sorts of interesting things are happening in these two verses. So he says, I will spare them as a man spares his son. This is language that equates or puts God in the same sphere as man. God's doing something as a man would do it. I will spare them as a man spares his son. He's drawing parallels, saying, this is how I'm going to act. And then in the next verse, he talks about, once more you'll see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What God is saying is his will is not currently being done on earth. He's currently, there's currently no distinction, and he's admitting as much what they see is accurate, that the wicked are prospering. He's saying, I'm going to right all those wrongs in the future when I come and I impose my judgment on the world. The theology of Malachi is not Calvinistic. It's not about Greek metaphysics. It's not about God's inherent unchangeableness. It's all about God in response to human beings. Human beings act, God responds. The people, they weary God. They make God mad. They make God frustrated. And God says, you know, I should have rightly destroyed you guys, but I did not destroy you. I should have, but I didn't. I'm going to send this guy, this Redeemer, this Messiah, and he's going to judge you guys. And he's going to kill all the wicked people. And then I'm going to reestablish justice on earth. Justice is currently not on earth. Justice is currently not in Israel. The wicked are prospering, but I one day am going to write that. And guess what? Those who serve me, they are going to be spared my judgment. They are going to be blessed in this new realm, this new reality. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, feel free to throw that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open companion Facebook page. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 